Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Thomas Fry. Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact dash Futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on our podcast. Thomas, you and I just threw together a last-minute interview with Steve Mauschewitz. He wrote a very penetrating analysis of the Future of Life Institute's open letter uh, calling for a six-month halt on training models more powerful than GPT-4. I, I thought it was very good. I thought he did a good job of making his position known and breaking out his different strategic claims. Did, did it shift your position at all? I know you and I have gone back and forth on this. My thinking has evolved a lot, uh, has evolved a lot on the issue. So where do you stand now after having talked to Steve? Yeah, I guess I'm still thinking that um, maybe if somebody says on the surface that they're going to slow things down, that they're not really going to do it in the background because it just takes too much to gain the momentum there's there's too many parts that are in motion that you um i don't know in the business world it's really hard to stop things that are already uh already happening and yeah i mean you can lay off a bunch of people or whatever but they're not going to lay off these people these are the people that are the the really hard to get engineers that are really making a difference and um yeah i i don't know i I, I, part of me is saying, well, could in the middle, middle of all this, could we have actually solved one of the major problems of the world that suddenly it won't get solved because we put everything on hold? Um, yeah. And so there's, there's all kinds of crazy, um, uh, crazy issues that come up in my mind. But I love the way he discussed things. I love the way um, he talked about all the dimensions of what's happening in the AI space. And so a fascinating interview. I, I agree. I think that all of that is worth pondering very carefully. And if, if I could find the time for it, I think it'd be very interesting to do a historical study on prior attempts to halt the developments of very, very powerful and dangerous technologies. I suspect there's a lot of insight there. But for today, the insight that we can offer you is this interview with Zvi Mauschewitz. So without any further ado, here it is. Tonight, we're joined by Zvi Mauschewitz. Zvi is a former professional player of Magic the Gathering. He's also been a trader and market maker in both traditional and non-traditional markets and was CEO of the personalized medical startup MetaMed. Recently, he wrote a very thoughtful analysis of the future of life's call to halt experiments with large language models, and that's the subject of our chat today. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. V, thanks so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Can we hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems that you're working on today? So, I mean, my background comes from working on a variety of problems. I've been, you know, a rationalist for a very long time. Classically, I'm a professional gamer by trade originally. Played Magic the Gathering professionally for over 10 years, made the Hall of Fame, wrote about that. That's when my writing started developing. After that, I moved into, you know, interest in gambling, interest in trading. Tried to start my own company for a bit, and then uh, 
right now I wound up I'm I'm still making a making a game uh, emergence, but uh, primarily I'm a writer at this point, and uh, so like the current writing gig started basically with COVID. I had a blog that was just talking about various different world modeling rationality style issues. And then I started talking about COVID and that became a weekly column and that became something people found helpful. And then as COVID wound down, uh, I discovered AI was winding up and I tried uh, <laughs> writing about that. And then suddenly I had no time to sleep. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, well, lucky for you, there's a new catastrophe on the horizon. So you don't have to, you don't have to stop writing. Yeah, that would be awful. I would hate it if there wasn't a new catastrophe on the horizon. What would I? <laughs> what, what would what would catastrophe bloggers uh, do with their time? Uh, well, I mean, either way, uh, ChatGPT might be automating that job anyway. So, so I I just don't know that there's even a, a future for you to live in. <laughs> well, I, I am very confident that GPT four ain't getting this one done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, let's let's talk a little bit about that. So I originally reached out to you because you had written a thoughtful analysis on the proposed moratorium, which came out from the Future of Life Institute, I actually just wrapped up an interview with Jeffrey Laddish, which is going out tomorrow on that. So I, I kind of wanted to pick your brain about that in particular. And given that you, you know, you thought a lot about COVID, you think a little bit about these sort of global coordination problems and what goes into them, I, I figured that could be the focus of our conversation. So if you just want to, you know, briefly adumbrate the FLI's letter, and then we can talk a little bit about your analysis of it and kind of go from there. Sure. So the FLI letter was basically saying, you know, we are, we're seeing rapid advancements in artificial intelligence capabilities, and it's kind of scary what might happen if we kept increasing model size and increasing, you know, how much we train them and how capable they are. We don't know what comes next. Uh, they said both from a short-term, they took our job style perspective of societal impact and a long-term, you know, if you create something that's fundamentally smarter than humanity, how does humanity survive existential type of problem? And that we don't have good answers to either of them. And their call was for a six month moratorium on training models more powerful than GPT-4. Excellent. And I, I recall from the letter, your framing of the way they conflate these two different risks. It's like, well, there might be technological unemployment. It kicks up to 7%. Or, or maybe it wipes out everyone. And it's like they sort of elided those differences and didn't make a principal distinction between them. That's the framing that I've, I've moved forward with as well and uh, have deployed in a couple of different interviews. So uh, as I recall, you thought that was okay strategically. I, I, don't, re I don't remember. So it, it was a clearly a deliberate decision, right? I, I know the names on this letter. I know the, kind of pe the people who wrote this letter, many of them. I know they know the difference. I know that they are worried. I know that many of them are worried almost exclusively about existential risk. And are not themselves very worried about they take our jobs risk. And I am in that camp as well. I am very, very unworried about short-term they take our jobs risk. I am very worried about existential risk and worried that like when we say long-term, that that long-term might not be so long for that yeah. kind of risk. Like it's actually pretty on top of us already potentially. Uh, and I think they made a decision that in order to get broader sign on for the letter, they would combine these concerns effectively into one. And that's incredibly frustrating for someone like me who likes to be precise and careful and advocate for the things that he thinks actually matter. And like, it makes a plenty of strategic sense to do that in order to, to get this broad, broader sense of sign on an agreement. Uh, a lot of people could say, well, you know, I don't understand why we should worry about everybody dying, but I do see that like, you know, our jobs are at risk and our societal cohesion is a, a worry and misinformation might come out. And, you know, you do want those people to support your efforts, right? Even if they don't understand the reason that you think is the good reason. 
So, so see, do you see any analogies in history that are parallel to this in the past, like the creating the the nuclear uh, the atom bomb um, in World War II? Is is that have any similarities that apply to this situation? I think there's a lot of different parallels in the past that we should think about. Uh, nuclear weapons are, of course, as you know, by far and away the most obvious one, right? Like we. We have this weapon that can wipe out the entire planet, or at least like, you know, kill billions and billions of people and potentially cause a lot of people to starve to death in the aftermath. And, you know, when we had rivals, it was very, very, you know, there was basically no progress made towards not building it. And everyone was in a race because, you know, if we don't build it, the Nazis will build it, the Soviets will build it, and the Soviets saw we us building it and they stole it from us and they built it themselves, and then it spread to other people. We did manage to get a substantial amount of nuclear arms control, nuclear non-proliferation, that I think leaves us in a substantially better position than we'd be in if we hadn't made those efforts. It's obviously still a super scary situation to this day, and you know, we have to worry. But you know, in some ways it's hopeful, in some ways it's not hopeful. If we only get the level of non-proliferation that we got for nuclear weapons, I'd be very, very worried about AI. I don't think it's the only example. I think we've done you know, somewhat better on some other proliferations, potentially. Like, you have to look at biological weapons. You have to look at chemical weapons. You also can think about climate change, right? As a situation in which, like, there is a continuously growing danger. It's in everyone's economic interest to disregard that danger and push forward for themselves. And, you know, all the different countries, like, security apparatuses care mostly about themselves and their relative strategic positions. But we did manage to get you know, a significant amount of collective action, and there's significant hope that we'll take action. So one I don't... The, what, one of the arguments is that if we if we wait, then it gives China time to catch up. Um, the uh, Another argument is that if we, um, if we get smarter, I mean, if we take these tools and actually uh, increase the, the IQ of humanity to a point, then we can actually um kind of see the world with a better pair of eyes to actually um come up with the solutions that we can't possibly see um through the lenses that we're looking through today um in your mind do any of those those arguments hold merit so i think they they're, they're separate arguments right and i would like to talk about them separately but i think mm -hmm. they they don't have no merit like they're definitely things you have to think about the things you have to consider uh i think for the China perspective, you have to look at the details of what is being proposed and what impacts what you're proposing would have and on the strategic landscape. So you ask yourself, you know, if you had a six-month pause and the training of more powerful models, you know, how much would that slow down OpenAI, Microsoft, how much would that slow down Google, how much would that slow down Anthropic, which are basically our three big horses in the race right now, right? They're capable of training those models, whereas it would have no impact on China because they're not currently capable of training the models in question anyway. And then the conclusion I would reach is both that I believe China is substantially behind right now uh, due to a combination of export controls and CCP restrictions on what forms they have to take and China's like trouble being able to like attract talent and do fundamental research and their lack of previous funding and momentum and so on. But also I think you have to look at how much would this actually push us back, right? If right. we did. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the maximum theory is like maybe six months. But I think that's clearly not correct, right? I think that most of the work that pushes us forward is a combination of, you know, eventually you have to train your new model to, to upgrade your hardware. 
but also you have to develop all of your techniques. You have to you know, use your feedback. You have to integrate a lot of things. You have to learn many things. You know, the work doesn't stop just because you're not training a new model. The work continues. And it's the equivalent of like, well, you know, you can't, you know, I have, you know, a PC I bought, you know, a year ago and I can choose like to upgrade it next year. I could choose to upgrade it three years from now. I could choose to upgrade it five years from now. And it will slow me down somewhat if I wait to upgrade it, but it doesn't mean I can't build software. It doesn't mean I can't do things that will help me when I get to the next PC. And in fact, OpenAI, as part of the GP204 paper, released graphs that showed that it can actually predict and anticipate what the new, more sophisticated, more advanced models will look like when trained based on doing very little training that would not be prohibited by these rules. And so what we miss out on is potentially a few months of being able to apply a model in the real world, like practically, that's somewhat more powerful. We, we miss out on GPT-4.5. But instead of getting GPT-4.5, we get GPT-5, like right on schedule anyway. Right, because like we wouldn't slow down that model. Some people would say, "Well, once we start a moratorium, will we ever resume from the moratorium?" And that's a another issue. But like as stated, I think it's a very small concern, and I think that like OpenAI itself raised the possibility that like being smarter about training, being more strategic about what you can do with the thing, exploring it is actually where we will get the low hanging fruit, especially in the economic benefit term in the medium term. I think like being able to develop better plugins, better techniques, better prompt engineering, better integration into various tools. Like I'm very excited in the economic sense by uh, Copilot for Microsoft yeah, and yeah. Google Bard integration. And neither of those, I think, require better models than GPT-4 in order to provide immense economic value. And it's not clear to me that like a model that's being trained now would be a substantial upgrade over that for that purpose. As opposed to, okay, first we need to be able to integrate what we have and understand what we have. And then maybe we can usefully do more in that sense. And of course, the, the better model is better. But like, look at, they have to limit GPT-4 right now to 25 queries every three hours, I think it still is. And they won't let people upgrade because too many people have paid for this. And there's a compute limitation. So if you train GPT-5 right, right now, and you put out GPT-5, which requires more compute, to use and is slower, right? How much can we really get out of it? As opposed to maybe we should be pumping that compute that we would spend on training GPT-5 into GPT-4 right now and to learning how to use GPT-4 better. Maybe that's just strategically the right move anyway. And so, I think this so wouldn't, wouldn't this just um, promote the tech companies to kind of bastardize the numbering system so that it goes from GPT-4 to GP-4.9 uh, 4.999, um, and it keeps going out. And we never actually hit GPT-5. Um, if we just number them differently, that yeah, will satisfy you. We'll yeah, seize yeah, control I, of the reward channel. <laughs> yeah, when, I, when I speak of GPT-5, right, I don't mean whatever OpenAI says is GPT-5, right? Yeah. I mean something that is to GPT-4 as GPT-4 is a GPT-3 in terms of, like, the amount of stuff you throw at it combined with like what it can do, right? In some important sense. Like, you know, when I talk about like, well, if you don't train, if say they're training GPT-5 now or could, and instead they wait six months and then train GPT-5. I speak of that as like, well, they're training GPT-5.2, right? Or 5.3 instead of training GPT-5 because like what they can train continuously moves up some sort of scale, right? Mm -hmm. In some important sense. Yeah. So right, you know, right now maybe they can train GPT-4.7 or whatever, and maybe that's worth training and maybe it's not. Uh, what they choose to label it, like, you know, obviously if the moratorium is agreed upon 
privately between the tech companies, then they'd be on some sort of like honor system or negotiation between themselves to figure out exactly what they would or wouldn't be allowed to train and exactly, you know, but what they choose to call things. Yeah. I mean, obviously that's not the real concern here. Right. And like GPT-4 with plugins is in many ways a substantially different product than GPT-4 without them, the same way that chat GPT was substantially different from GPT-3.5 without the chat GPT interface. And yeah. isn't, isn't there always going to be some version of GPT-5 or 6 on the dark web that somehow makes it out there that um, everybody says, it's not me. I don't know who put it there. And somehow people have access to it and uh, messes messes up all the plans that were set in motion. <laughs> so, so there's there's the important thing, to, one important thing to know about these models, right, is that training a big model is super expensive, right? right. Requires tons and tons of compute and GPUs okay. and, and data cleaning and so on. And running the thing is very cheap. So if you were to get a copy of GPT-4, right, all its weights and its infrastructure right now, and you put it on the dark web, you know, we'd be running it on our computers pretty fast, like all of us, right? Yeah. We'd be able to do that. And then like everybody could fine tune it and everybody could do whatever they wanted to it. And this would be, you know, a huge advancement in capabilities very quickly for good and bad. Uh, however, who's going to train the GPT-5 to get onto the dark web, right? Who's going to assemble an order of magnitude more compute and an order of magnitude better, more cleaned up, properly formatted data that's been selected to allow the thing to train properly and understand a lot of the techniques? Because like, you know, a lot of what OpenAI did was they, they developed a lot of tweaks to how you train things that is very much a like engineers, tinkerers, like try a bunch of little things and layer them on top and each one is a 1% improvement to our performance rather than having one big insight that you can necessarily copy. And so if you wanted to be an open source model, we have open source models now, right? That are like equivalent to about 3.5, 3.6, you know, something is like my best estimate from what I've seen. And so like, if you didn't train GPT-5, you know, maybe we'd be able to train GPT-4 like next year through like the open source style methods or like Facebook would screw, Facebook would be foolish enough to release another copy of a, a better trained model like they did with Llama. But, you know, I don't think there's that much risk that we can, someone's gonna put GPT-5 equivalent on the dark web. I think that's even less likely like quickly than the worries about like China training a GPT-5 behind our backs. Like, I think these are very, but over the long term, I agree. Like, you know, if you have 10 years from now, right? Is there any chance that we won't have a GPT-5? Well, if we didn't want a GPT-5 in 10 years, we would need to do like Eliezer Yudkowsky style proposals to like track all the GPUs and severely limit what people could do and actually like physically stop people because, you know, Moore's law is broken, but not completely broken. And there'll be more GPUs and there'll be better GPUs and there'll be more compute, more developed techniques and the open source people will keep working. So, you know, we can't stall it forever, but the, the hope is that if we slow down a bit, we can develop better techniques and better understand what we're doing. Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com, go to the contact page, and drop us a line. 
Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. Before we do it. Yeah, uh, my, my read of the strategic landscape is pretty similar. So based on interviews that Sam Altman has given, training one of these models requires truly stratospheric engineering talent. And it's often a matter of having, you know, $20 million to throw at compute and also people who can make, you know, 150 separate little optimizations that actually get this thing running and achieving state-of-the-art performance. And so there is kind of a window of opportunity for coordination among the half dozen entities that are even capable of doing this kind of thing. And so that's sort of the heart of the interview. I, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, as somebody who's written a lot about COVID, you know a lot about collective action failures. How, what, what sort of coordination mechanisms or proposals do you have for these companies, you know, slowing down the research, boosting our chances of understanding these models and using them safely and all the attendant issues in that? Like, like how should they proceed? So the good news is that we have a very limited number of entities involved in this discussion, right? If you had 50 different labs that were roughly on pace. Be no chance. Yeah. Only government action could possibly help you, right? The only thing right. you can do is pass a law, have a dictate come down and then try to enforce it. With three, Right, you have much more of a chance because a lot of the with the AI, the AI, the AI summer potential, right? That these companies can harvest big gains from their currently existing models and tweaking and developing their currently existing models for a substantial amount of time, as long as nobody else puts out a better model that suddenly is the new shiny that drives people away from them. So there's a significant opportunity there. Also, um, all three companies have people who are serious about and understand that AI safety in the existential sense, is a real problem. It doesn't mean that they appreciate it the way Elias Yudkowsky would like them to, right? It doesn't mean that they think that, like, if they don't do extraordinary measures, that we're 99% doomed. It does mean that they understand that we could easily be doomed, that, like, something could go very wrong. So, like, you know, Sam Altman has spoken extensively about how he has read Elias Yudkowsky and how he appreciates the risks. And sometimes he sounds cavalier, right? The famous quote of, you know, AI might end the world, but in the meantime, there'll be some great companies, yeah, right? <laughs> and, and that's not the kind of thing you want to hear from the person in charge of making sure the world doesn't end. But it is better than somebody who says there's just going to be some great companies and the world won't ever end, no matter what we do. It means, you know, and there's, there's clearly channels between some of these companies because they've worked with each other and they've talked to each other and they know each other and it's a small world. Anthropic was founded explicitly in order to be safe and to proceed safely and still has a substantial amount of corporate apparatus, no matter what happened in TechCrunch and no matter what they're trying to race for, that gives them the ability to make like safety first strategic decisions if given the opportunity. If OpenAI proposed a pause and like Microsoft and Google were down with it, it seems very likely that Anthropic would say yes. And so it's much more about getting those two like to agree to something. And now we're down to two in a real sense, or at least this is our hope, right? And two is a lot easier than three. And we're already seeing them start to talk about things that, you know, things that they can coordinate on, things they cooperate on. Uh, for example, ARC, right? So ARC is uh, Paul Cristiano's operation. It's a method of evaluating potential new models to see if they pose a serious danger of breaking out, becoming, you know, agents that can self-direct, you know, or otherwise pose a potential threat that they might recursively self-improve or gather resources or endanger humanity. And OpenAI has made it clear that 
in the future, they're going to use ARC evaluations. And if the ARC evaluation comes back, no, you absolutely cannot release this, they will honor that and they will not release the thing. And they have in fact delayed their previous, like when we're talking about a six month pause in the, in the in training models, OpenAI waited six months before deploying GPT-4 and previously waited six months you know, or more before deploying GPTs two and three in their own forms. This is not an unprecedented amount of caution and delay. It doesn't seem like it's unreasonable at all. And they didn't do that through, a co through an agreement. They just did that because they decided to do so because they decided it was, it was more responsible for them. So I, I think that these things are well off in people's grasp. I think certainly like, you know, Anthropic could propose, you know, here's how we think the, the ARC agreement after talking to Paul Cristiano and, and his people is going to work. Here are the things that absolutely must happen before a system is released. Here are the red flags. If any of these red flags get triggered, the system will not be released under any circumstances. Here's what we need to wish the general public. And then OpenAI could say, okay, that makes sense. We agree to do something like that. And they could absolutely say, you know, until we can work that out, we're going we're gonna to do some sort of pause. But like the important thing here is that there's three entities. They can talk to each other and we want to get them talking. We want to get them like, seriously considering what they can do and, and laying out an infrastructure for that, right? Because like one of the things that you learn with the example of nuclear power and other examples is, you know, once countries get used to talking to each other, once they've formed other agreements, even if those individuals, like even if you form a nuclear agreement that says, you know, we're only going to make enough missiles to make the rubble bounce three times, not four times, right? And like, does that help you? Well, I mean, it saves you a little money, but it doesn't really make anyone any safer, right? In some important sense. But now you've decided you can talk and you can reach an agreement. And now you've developed protocols and you've developed relationships with each other. And you've actually shown that both sides honored the agreement, even if it didn't really have any good reason not to. And now maybe you can try to make the rubble bounce only once, right? Maybe you can try to make something that actually significantly matters happen. And that in fact did happen later on, right? We had various start treaties and various other things that like significantly changed potential outcomes for the better, I think. That's certainly my model of, of nuclear risk. And similarly, like with like things like the Paris Agreement, right? Like nobody thinks the Paris Agreement is going to magically solve climate change. It doesn't really have an enforcement mechanism. Its goals are insufficient. You know, it, it's way too vague, et cetera, et cetera. People don't, not all countries have signed off on it. But the more you do things, you flex those muscles and you build those relationships, you get into those patterns, you set those precedents, the better the chance that when, you know, GPT-6 is being trained. Like say GPT-5, you know, I think is probably fine, right? I, I think it's not 0% that it's a problem on this level. But I think it's pretty low that like the thing we would naturally call GPT-5 is a world-threatening device. But I think there's a decent chance that like when we train GPT-6, right? Especially when we know we're going to wrap this thing instantly in all of these like auto GPT style agent mechanisms right away, right? Like it came out today, actually this morning, at least I saw it, that like they developed like a virtual world, like Sim style, where like they had various different people walking around and developing plans and, and getting parties and having crushes and coordinating with each other. And all of them were just basic GPT-4 cycles. And like, again, I'm not particularly worried about this happening with GPT-4 or even four and a half or even five necessarily. But like at some point, you should start to worry that humans are being dumb and are going to give these things open-ended goals and give these things autonomy. And they're going to start gathering resources and we're going to be potentially in some trouble. And you need to know where you should worry that you have to stop giving people models to work with that are too powerful for that or something like that, say. Mm -hmm. And if they flex the muscles of meeting and reviewing and comparing notes, then the hope is that when the time comes that they actually have to have an agreement that matters, right, that we'll be ready. And also that we can extend that habit to potentially 
talking to others. Like we didn't talk too much. We talked briefly about the Chinese question, but yeah. you know, my, my, my view of China in this whole thing has been, you know, they're way behind. That will of course, with enough time change if we were to completely stand still. But you know, they actually have a lot of handicaps in this process. And my model of the CCP and the Chinese government is that what they are overwhelmingly worried about is a strategic disadvantage and being threatened by our developments, not that they need one for themselves or else, right? They need one because we have one. They need to not lose the race. They don't need to win the race. What they are understandably worried about is that AI is the you know, strategic, economic, military, social equivalent of nuclear weapons. And if we develop it full blast, then we will dominate the world, right? That we will have an overwhelming strategic advantage, military advantage, economic advantage, that people in China will be using effectively our tools to navigate everything in the world. There's nothing they can do about it. And then like what happens when someone asks one about Tiananmen Square, right? Like, or right. You know, anything else. And they don't know how to control that. So they need to race. But, you know, it is very much in China's self-interest. I don't understand why people don't talk about this more. For everyone not to race, right? If, if we said, we're going to create an AI summer where you don't develop your models and we don't develop our models and we just refine our applications and, and, and get the benefits of what we've already discovered for a while and proceed slower, well, that's greatly in China's advantage. So like China would have to proceed like, make a deliberate choice to either proceed openly with continuing to develop things when we have made it clear that like their agreement not to do that is what's holding us back. If we were to go to them and say, we have an agreement as long as you play ball, right? Like, and that's the carrot and the stick are entirely like, we're not threatening you with anything. We're just like, well, if you agree, we can do this. And if you don't agree, we can't do this. We won't hold together. And, you know, or they can try to proceed in secret, but now you've got... Like it's, the problem is so much harder, right? You need these massive training runs, these tons of highly skilled engineers, and now you're telling them that, that the United States can't figure out they're doing this. How are they going to gather data? How are they going to commercialize this? How are they going to use this? Right? Everything so far has been iterative. It seems very implausible to me that they could pull this off, and we would find out, and then that would be the end of the pause. And so, it seems highly plausible to me that. China, in fact, will play ball if we just, I don't know, but ask it nicely is the right term for it. It's not like trivial. I'm not saying it's easy, but like, it's really not as outlandish or crazy as people make it out to be. We're actually in a relatively good situation here, right? And like, if you propose, well, the only way we can get China to stop is to get an overwhelming advantage first. Well, what do you mean by that, right? Like, that's like the Tower Cohen position, right? But like the idea that like, because we must beat China, we must get even more of a lead. We must like develop our capabilities even more because those capabilities are dangerous. Well, do you intend to actually gain, or gain a decisive strategic advantage over China? And if you do, what are you gonna do with it? Right, using AI. Are you going to actually like dare develop AI that can gain strategic, decisive strategic advantages and deploy them for the purposes of gaining decisive strategic advantages? That does not sound safe to me at all. Yeah. Right? And then the question is like, well, what are you gonna do? What's your pivotal act? It's gonna stop China then. Because I don't think they're going to be in the mood to cooperate that much more than they would be under my proposal at that point. No, sure, surely not. Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati podcast? If so, please like it. 
give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. So I've been, I've been working with tech companies pretty much all my life, and one of the hardest things to do is actually get to a point where you're where you have momentum, you have things moving, you have things working. And to for somebody to come in and ask to slow it down, um, that's that's like um, that's like saying the wrong words to these people. Maybe maybe there's some higher level managers that will give um, window dressing to that that will make it sound like they're they want to play ball or something. But I can't I can't possibly imagine the the tech operation in the background actually slowing down. I I think it's taken um, kind of moving heaven and earth to get to this point right now. Um, it is is that realistic to think that. Uh, that they will actually slow down. I, I have a real hard time believing that. Well, we do have some advantages, right? We we know for a fact that they're not actually moving at the maximum speed they could. Like, there's no doubt that DeepMind could have deployed a lot more commercialization, could have trained a lot more models, could have been much much louder about its progress than it was. We know that OpenAI has successfully held back each of its models for at least a number of months after deployment is not proceeding as fast as you know, in theory could. Um, and we know that like a lot of these companies were founded explicitly and deliberately with charters centered around safety. Right? I mean, Google is different, but like DeepMind was not. Like Dennis Savas founded DeepMind out of the concern about what AI might do, the same way that OpenAI was founded out of concern and Profit was founded out of concern. And yeah, those of us who raised those concerns kind of like feel weird about this and like maybe we shouldn't have told them about this concern in the first place and we'd all be better off. But what's done is done and we do have those advantages, we might as well use them. I, I totally feel what you're saying here about, you know, they have momentum, they're feeling good, you're telling them to stop, that's crazy talk. And I would say, we're, we're definitely not telling them they should leave people off or that people should stop working about, working on like making their AIs do things or become, you know, more able to be beneficial to people. We are asking them to redirect their efforts in ways that move their capabilities in a less dangerous fashion. And also that like a unique situation is going to eventually develop where they're going to have to make these decisions. And we're hoping that the people in place have heard enough of the arguments, understand enough of the reasons, have seen enough of their own eyes, right? Because they're internal and they're seeing their models. And I'm sure that everybody inside all three of these companies, right, has seen all of the failed training runs that they didn't release about and all of the things that they tried, they didn't talk about that caused these things to go kind of nuts. That caused these things to do things we absolutely do not want them to do. Mm -hmm. That caused them to be scared quite a lot, right? Like they, OpenAI once trained with a flip sign on the reward function. Like they actually just did that. And they got a model that like actively tried to do as harmful things as possible. And they realized that they shut it down because it's not capable enough that to be scary. But like, that's the stuff that we hear about. What are the stuff we don't hear about, right? It's got to be super scary. And they know all the things they've tried that didn't work. And they know exactly where their stuff starts breaking down in ways that we don't know. So, you know, and at the same time, like, you know, every tech company 
also has a legal department, right? Every tech company has a regulatory compliance department. Every tech company has public relations departments. And all of these people worry about what happens if you move too fast. And there are going to be some very, very legitimate concerns, right? Even on a non-intentional level. Because like if you release a model that we are worried could become existential, right? You should be very worried, even if you think that's crazy talk, that somebody's going to like blow up something or like some sort of thing's going to break down. It's going to be a hundred million dollars worth of damage or five people are going to die in an accident, right? Or there's going to be some sort of misinformation scandal and you're going to get sued for $11 billion, right? Like, and you, you have to be concerned about that. And if you move with maximum speed, it's going to happen and you are going to get sued out of existence and the public is going to turn against you, right? Which is why, you know, OpenAI is clearly taking a lot of precautions and slowing things down, at least enough that they feel like the short-term risks have been contained. And that's why GPT-4 is remarkably crippled, right? Like if you think about what GPT-4 can and can't do and will or won't do for you, right, under its current structure, like their reinforcement learning from human feedback has been taken as a sledgehammer to this thing's creativity, a lot of the thing's capabilities, like I would say a substantial portion of the things that I would want to do in practice with GPT-4, GPT-4 will just say no, right? And these things are not actually dangerous. They're not actually harming anyone. They're just, you know, it can't be creative. It can't be objective. It can't handle certain like more adult things because the decision was made from a PR standpoint, essentially, that it couldn't do that. Right. Right. And so what happens when the stakes are not chat in a box? What happens when the stakes are this thing is deciding like how people reply to emails with like kind of out of, you know, without direct supervision and it's like designing business plans and it's like executing arbitrary code all over the place and other things that like we are like not fooling ourselves into thinking people are not going to have it do. Mm -hmm. It can do a lot of damage, right? Like it, no matter what, even if the accidental risks turn out to have been a mirage, right? If it turns out somehow that we live in a miracle world where none of that stuff is actually physically feasible or, or likely. And again, I think this is very, very unlikely that like this problem just goes away without us actively solving it. I think we might actively solve it or, but like, you know, these things are going to be problems and we know they're going to be problems, right? On the levels of supercharged versions of things like malware, right? We just know that's going to be the case. Right. And so, you know, these people are going to be in the habit of slowing down. They're going to be in the habit of not deploying everything they develop the moment they have it, of not just training the biggest possible model at the biggest possible cost. And they're also already running into serious financial trade-offs there, right? Like GPT-4 costs quite a lot of money to train. We don't know how much because they're not talking. But when you imagine how much GPT-6 would cost to train, right? We're talking about billions and billions of dollars. We're talking about significant percentage of even in Google's market cap potentially, just to train that one model. And we don't know if we're going to get that much out of it necessarily in practice, mm -hmm. like get our money back. So like, it's not obvious to me that they won't just kind of have a sigh of relief that they can instead like have, you know, OpenAI has very few employees, right? It has like 300 something engineers, I think, something like that, working on their, working on AI. And so I think they'd much rather not have most of their costs to be training compute, right? I think they'd much rather have most of their costs be a combination of compute people pay for because they're using the service and their engineers develop better and better techniques, right? That seems like the place you'd want to be in that sense. 
And one interesting thing that, that, that Anthropic's deck said was they expect that whoever has the better stuff coming out of this next cycle of development is going to have an overwhelming strategic advantage and it's unlikely other people will catch up. Now, I don't think that's because other people won't be able to train a larger model, right? Because like anybody can, in theory, raise money and like Apple or Amazon can throw $10 billion of compute at something if they wanted to. That's not the issue. The issue is that you will have enough customer interactions and data and experience and specialized knowledge, and you will be building yourself into the infrastructure of the internet such that you know the other companies will just be hopelessly behind on a human practical experiential level. And that's not going to be because like their models don't have enough parameters, right? Like anybody can train right, a big right. enough model with enough money. And in fact, that's never going to be the moat, right? You don't want that to be the moat. That moat is a disastrous moat to have in terms of your financial expectations, right? Because if you have a, if you're in strong, fierce competition, right, with three different people, and you're all pricing aggressively, and you're all like worried about marginal cost and like trying to set it up so that you can like sell your other products that are linked to this thing and otherwise make money, you first of all, you do not want these other entrants, right? Like, but like, you also just don't want fixed costs. Like fixed costs are how companies die, right? Like you want your costs to be marginal in this sense, right? Because they're all competing in price equals marginal cost if you all compete fiercely and then everyone has a fixed cost. They're just sitting there and they lose the money. That's not good. Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. Uh, last question, you know, would you say on net you're you're hopeful about the directions that you're seeing, the, the signals that are coming out of the market, or is there still a lot of cause for worry? Yes, right. Like, I'm hopeful, but like default is bad, right? Like, so like everybody has hope relative to something else. So like one thing I'm hopeful about is I am very hopeful about the short-term impact of artificial intelligence, right? Where short-term means like GPT-4 level models, right? GPT-4, four and a half style models and an AI summer where we capture those games. I'm not worried about them taking our jobs. I'm not worried about them saying the wrong words. I'm not worried about them like encouraging terrorists or spreading that misinformation or doing deep fakes, right? Or, or any of that. I do think there are some serious concerns people are not taking seriously enough about how malware is going to be spread or how, how mm -hmm. people can hijack these things through prompt injections and stuff like that. But I think it's the kind of thing that like creates small problems and then you figure it out, right? Like it's the kind of thing we're used to handling and we will handle it and the damage will be contained and it'll be fine. Um, I'm also hopeful that people are starting to appreciate the real problems more and more, right? Like when I, you know, even a few months ago, I would have felt much more nervous about expressing a lot of these concerns and trying to figure out how to communicate them to people. And I think a lot of people kind of get them. And I think in particular, it's been very promising talking to like normal people, right? People who are not in tech and seeing that they actually appreciate these problems pretty well. And the people in the labs, in fact, do appreciate these are problems. And we have a long way to go, right? Before we get to where we want. So like the ARC evaluations for GPT-4, right? They were completely inadequate if GPT-4 was actually dangerous, right? If GPT-4 is actually, when you hook it up to AutoGPT or something like, you know, AutoGPT version 3.5, 
suddenly turns into something highly dangerous and highly destructive that maybe even threatens us all. ARC would not have caught that, right? Like what ARC physically did would not have caught that because they were given a less capable model without access to plugins and they tested on that and they tested like a reasonably limited amount. So it wouldn't have caught it. However, you know, a new iterated version of that once we flex our muscles, right? The same thing we want, to, we want them to flex their muscles with the negotiations, they're flexing their muscles with the evaluations. So the hope is that the future version will have some teeth and then the future version after that will have real teeth. And also I'm actually hopeful about how little dignity we have in a strange way. Like one early, early speculations where people would be very, very careful about what they did with AI is because they would understand the dangers and therefore like you wouldn't know what was going on almost until it was too late. But it turns out people are just so not caring about the dangers. They're just, you know, not the, not the labs themselves, but like the regular people on the outside. And they're charging ahead with like Zapier integrations, right? In AutoGPT. And they're hooking like everything up to their AIs, telling them to be agents, just seeing what happens. And so what this means is that like the AI in the training run is going to be fundamentally agentless in ways that the AI after the training run is going to be much more of an agent doing the current paradigm of development in ways that we might not have previously anticipated. And like, we're seeing a lot of the seriously dangerous steps happen more incrementally and more in a place where we would actually have a chance to notice them and intervene. And also where it had more of a chance to do like a small amount of damage, right? To get a real fire alarm in the form of, oh my God, you know, that's only a hundred, that's a hundred million dollars worth of damage. Oh my God, 50 people died or, you know, the, the internet went out for a week in Denver or, you know, whatever it is that happened that caused us to realize something went very wrong. Right. Yeah, that, that seems to, to have some evidence, or it seems to lend, lend some credence to Cristiano's belief that we'll have at least a, a few chances to learn from alignment failures, but we don't have to necessarily get all of it right on the first try. Uh, so so that's- Yeah, I want to yeah, speak to that because like, I'm actually like, I, mean, I, I do think that like, it's important to notice that all of the things that we're doing to align the AI right now, right? As I understand the technical aspects of it, I strongly believe have epsilon chance of working on a model that would back that we'd be dangerous if it wasn't, if no safety precautions were used, right? The safety precautions are working precisely because the systems aren't dangerous enough, right. right? And that like the moment you need those systems to work the way you want them to, or we are all in deep, deep trouble, that is the exact moment these things clearly stop working. They might stop working first, but like that is the moment when they suddenly stop working the way that you wanted them to. And these things start being deceptive. These things start, mis you know, misinterpreting from your point of view what you meant to do these things start doing strange unexpected actions that like you did not anticipate you know all of these things start going wrong they go wrong simultaneously and you don't know they're going wrong because you trained the system to pretend to be what you want right like that was your whole goal so like you are setting yourself up for complete disaster now what you need is that thing is that that system to break down fast enough right when it's not that bad for it to break down and we'll see, but like, I think the scary, the scary situation is if the techniques are just good enough that they kind of hold for too long, right? And that's like, that would be a real problem. I think that's very possible. Okay, well, we, we plan on covering the issue in, in further episodes. I'm, I'm gonna try to line up some more interviews uh, with, with people in the space who are thinking very seriously about it. So yeah, I, re I really appreciate your time. Thanks for walking us through this and, and giving us your perspective and the, the benefit of your insight. Absolutely. Much appreciated, Sri. Thank yeah, you. sure. Anytime, man. This is fun.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.